0: Today, in keeping with the Christian calendar, brothers and sisters all around the world are commemorating the baptism of Jesus. So we are returning to Luke chapter 3. Um, back in December, we covered the first 14 verses of chapter 3, and now we are picking up with verses 15 to 22. As we saw back in December, John, the baptizer, was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And his job was to foster a spirit of national repentance, to prepare the nation of Israel to receive her Messiah. The Jewish people were waiting for their Messiah, and John's job was to increase their sense of expectation. And verse 15 indicates that John was doing a good job. It says, as the people were in expectation, John's followers were expectant. In fact, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John has been teaching us to expect the coming Messiah, but, but we've been waiting, and the, the Messiah still has not yet come. So maybe John is the Messiah. Maybe John is the anointed one. He's, he's the great redeemer we've been waiting for. Maybe John will bring justice to our enemies and restore us to our land. So John sets the record straight. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John was a mighty man of God. But here he says the coming Messiah is even mightier the strap of whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. Now, um, this reference to untying sandals has a few possible interpretations, all of which may be simultaneously true. Um, Let me offer three options. Number one, at face value, John is declaring his own inferiority. The coming Messiah is so far superior that, that to be called his servant would be too great an honor. Even to untie his sandals would be too great an honor. Number two, this could be a reference to Isaiah 63, where the Messiah is depicted as a mighty savior who treads in the wine press. In ancient times, the, the process of making wine actually involved standing in a vat, a, a wine press, and stomping on the grapes while barefoot, a.k.a. without sandals. And Isaiah 63 indicates that the Messiah would be left all alone in fulfilling this task, which may explain why John would have nothing to offer by way of assistance. I can't, I can't even untie his sandals for him. But my favorite option is option number three. Um, I think there is an even deeper meaning to John's words here. Deuteronomy 25 introduces an Israelite custom known as the Leveret Law. According to the Leverett Law, if a man died prior to having children, his oldest surviving brother was expected to marry his widow and produce an heir. Why? Well, because in the ancient world, the situation of a childless widow was especially precarious. They had no one to protect them, no one to provide for them. And so the Leverett Law guaranteed relational and material stability for childless widows. And for this reason, the surviving brother was referred to as a kinsman redeemer. But what happens if the man refuses to marry his brother's widow? Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 7. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So, if a man refused to marry his brother's widow, the woman was instructed to remove his sandal and spit in his face. Not something you want, right? We see this principle in action at the end of the book of Ruth, though it, though it takes on a slightly different form. Ruth asks Boaz to be her kinsman-redeemer, but Boaz was not her nearest relative. And so Boaz approaches the nearest kinsman, but the man was either unable or unwilling to be Ruth's redeemer. So the man transfers to Boaz the right and responsibility of redeeming Ruth. Ruth. And, and get this, he symbolizes this transfer by removing his sandal and giving it to Boaz. And so the custom in Israel was this. When a man forfeited his sandal, he was symbolically declaring someone else to be the bridegroom and redeemer. And isn't that what John is doing here? He's declaring someone else to be the bridegroom, someone else to be the redeemer. The people are wondering whether John is the Messiah. The people are wondering whether John has come to redeem them. But John is the friend of the bridegroom. He is not the bridegroom. He is not the nearest kinsman. And so John is saying, far be it from me to claim what is not mine to claim. Far be it from me to redeem what is not mine to redeem. Israel is a childless widow, but I am not the one to make her fruitful again. There is a nearer kinsman, a redeemer to come, a bridegroom to come, and he will not forfeit his sandal. He will certainly redeem Israel. Okay, enough about sandals. Um, Next, John says that whereas he baptizes with water, the Messiah... To come will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. According to John, the Messiah will work the threshing floor, dividing wheat from chaff. I'll, I'll explain more about the threshing floor in a bit, but this is a metaphor of judgment, which is not how we typically imagine the coming of Christ. Right? It's true. It's true that Jesus came as a humble, merciful, suffering servant. He absorbed the wrath reserved for us. He purified us. And he loved us to the point of death. And anyone in the world who repents of their sin and calls upon his name is redeemed and welcomed into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus embodied the boundless grace of God. However, It's also true that Jesus will one day come as a perfectly just judge. His judgment will be perfectly just. He will not accidentally retain some of the chaff. He will not accidentally throw away some of the wheat. He knows all and he sees all and that is very good news. That is why Christians can say that vengeance belongs to the Lord. That is what enables us to be wronged. To be slandered. And to suffer persecution with dignity. Jesus will one day come to make it all right. So we don't have to. He will extinguish evil. He will do away with death. Interestingly, this mercy versus judgment dynamic has always been a feature of God's dealings with his people. For instance, the temple in Jerusalem... The place where the people would go to atone for their sins was built upon a threshing floor. In 2 Samuel 24, King David purchases a threshing floor, and then the temple is later built upon that very plot of land. The temple was built upon a threshing floor. On the threshing floor, oxen would tread upon the grain. So this is a lot like the wine press, right? The the grain could not be used until it had actually been trampled upon and opened up. And typically this was done by oxen. Now, in the Bible, oxen are associated with Israel's priests. In the Bible, oxen are associated with the men who are appointed to serve in the temple. This is not an accident. So the temple was built upon a threshing floor. And like oxen, the priests were responsible for working the threshing floor. They were appointed as oxen to tread grain in the temple, to make Israel fruitful. And get this. The priests who ministered in the temple were barefoot. Before a priest could enter the temple, he had to remove his sandals. So I, I know I said enough about the sandals, but here we are again. The sermon's about sandals. So I, I, I know that was a lot of information. Let me, let me try to tie it all together. You know, like a sandal. If, if you recall from Ruth chapter 3, when Ruth asks Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, she uncovers his bare feet as he sleeps. And where was he sleeping? On the threshing floor. By uncovering his feet, Ruth is asking Boaz to tread out the grain to make a childless widow fruitful. Now, the Messiah is going to redeem Israel, much like Boaz redeemed Ruth. He will pay her debt, and he will tread out the grain and make Israel fruitful again. And I think that is what Luke is hinting at with his account of Jesus' baptism. With, with John's words here. As we see in verse 23, Jesus was about 30 years old at the time of his baptism. 30 was the age at which every priest began his public ministry. And the beginning of his public ministry was marked by a baptism. He was anointed with water. And so all the imagery in Luke chapter 3 is suggesting that the baptism of Jesus is functioning as his ordination to the priesthood. Jesus is being ordained to atone for sins and to tread the grain. To atone for Israel's sins and to make Israel fruitful. Jesus was the kinsman redeemer who would raise up sons and daughters for his dead brother. Adam. Now, I think this also helps to explain verses 19 and 20. Says Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. So um, John talks about the coming Messiah, these verses, and then Jesus is baptized. These verses seem out of place, right? That that is until you see what Luke is doing under the surface. You see, King Herod lusted after Herodias, who was his brother's wife. And so King Herod divorced his wife so that he could take his brother's wife. And you see, this is the exact opposite of the law, the the Leveret law. Rather than honoring his brother by providing for his brother's wife, he is dishonoring his brother by taking his brother's wife. And so Luke is presenting King Herod in these verses as an anti-redeemer, an anti-messiah. The true Messiah was coming not for selfish gain, not to break the commandments of God, not to bring further shame and dishonor upon Israel like Herod, But like a faithful bridegroom, he was coming to take upon himself the debt owed by his bride. He was coming to swallow her shame and to make her fruitful. Faced with a responsibility that would end up costing him his life, Jesus refused to take off his sandal. He did it. The Messiah is the true king of Israel and he will surely redeem her. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Um, So really Luke just offers a passing reference to the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus also had been baptized, Luke does not place his emphasis on the baptism itself. Luke's emphasis is on the context of that baptism. When all the people were baptized and when Jesus also was baptized. You see, the emphasis is on Jesus being baptized along with the people. In his baptism, Jesus identifies with those baptized. And that remains true today. He identifies with all of us as a baptized community, and he identifies with each of us as baptized individuals. As we read from Romans 6 earlier, we have been united with him in death, and we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection. In fact, the apostle Paul goes on, uh, he tells us to go ahead and consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because he identifies with us, because he unites us to himself, we are redeemed. We were childless widows, but we have been united in covenant to our kinsman redeemer. Did you catch that? We were childless widows, but we have been united in covenant to our kinsman redeemer. That's what baptism is. And so if you ever doubt the status of your own redemption. Look no further than your own baptism. Remember your baptism and say to yourself, I am a baptized person. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. All right, let me say one last thing about this baptism before we conclude. Verses 21 and 22. Um, I think, sound a lot like Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. We are told that the prophet Ezekiel was 30 years old. We are told that he was among the people of God. He was alongside a body of water when the heavens opened and he was given a vision of God. And so I think Luke's depiction of the baptism of Christ is presenting Jesus as the greater Ezekiel. Luke's depiction is presenting Jesus as a prophet. And the the reason I want to take a brief moment just to say that is that I, I think it, I think it completes the full picture that Luke is trying to paint here. Okay. We've seen that Jesus was being ordained as a priest, the greater Boaz, the faithful redeemer who like an ox would tread out the grain on the threshing floor. We've seen that Jesus was being ordained as a king. The righteous ruler beside whom King Herod was a counterfeit at best. And we've seen that Jesus has, is being ordained as a prophet. The greater Ezekiel who is not only given visions of God, but also hears him speak. Hears him speak words of blessing from the heavens. These were the three primary offices under the old covenant. Priest, king, and prophet. And in each case, the person being commissioned to these offices was anointed. And so if Luke is doing what I think he's doing, then all of these anointings have merged into one ritual, water baptism. Jesus is the baptized priest, the baptized king, the baptized prophet of the new covenant. And And when we are baptized, when we are baptized, the same can be said of us. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, Christians are partakers of his anointing. Partakers of that same anointing. We are a priesthood serving in the temple. Treading out the grain and offering the bread of life to the nations. We are the royal sons and daughters of God, kings and queens, and we have been called and exalted to reign alongside him. We are, the, we are prophets, the friends of God, his counselors, filled with the Holy Spirit and called to testify to his will and to the coming kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Um, For opening the heavens to us, even this morning. uh, For speaking to us, for pouring out your spirit upon us. Jesus, you are our high priest, our kinsman redeemer, our righteous king, the prophet of prophets. We thank you for paying our debt, for bringing us into your family like a good kinsman redeemer and for making us fruitful. Holy Spirit, fill us with the spirit of Christ. Um, unite us to him and make that union fruitful help us to be all that we are in him in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit amen